it is essential for our survival to use these powerful tools in the most humane and wise way. And the only way to guarantee that is not to shuffle the responsibility off to somebody else, but to make sure that every citizen understands science and technology to some extent. Lighten up, Francis. Thank you for being here for the second time to talk about the things that I love to talk about and I know you love to talk about and those are things that are interstellar. Everyone, I'm just going to give an Abby, I'm just going to give a short, short um, introduction to you because uh, there's so much to know about you, but I'm going to try to keep it down to a couple of lines that we can find from the Breakthrough uh, Initiative. Uh, everyone, Mr. Abby Loeb is a theoretical physicist. He's written over 500 scientific papers and books on Astrophysics and cosmology, mainly on the first stars and black holes. Time magazine selected him as one of the 25 most influential people in space. Loeb, Abby, serves as a Frank B. Baird Jr. Professor of Science at Harvard University, where he serves as chair of the Harvard Astronomy Department, director of the Institute of Theory and Computation, and director of the Black Hole Initiative. He's an elected fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the American Physical Society, and the International Academy of Astronautics, and a member of the Board on Physics and astronomy of the national academies thank you so much abby i'm sorry that um you probably maybe get tired of hearing us say that all the time about you but we have to because you're such a wonderful person and so informed and such a part of the things that we're going to talk about and i've told everybody what we're going to talk about tonight and that's interstellar objects are you up for a discussion about interstellar objects tonight i will be delighted wonderful okay i'm going to start with the one that's uh in in our uh, closest to the sun. How about that? I think that's a great one because everyone should know right now that the interstellar traveler that's closest to the sun is named Comet Borisov. You, of course, know about Comet Borisov, right? Yes, of course. And today we're fortunate to have this discussion on Sunday. And I've, and this first question is very important to me, believe it or not. Now, here's the, the question I have to ask, Abby. You know, I've, I've followed a number of comets, but not as many as some other amateur astronomers. So I do come at the discussion maybe not having as much experience as some other astronomers. But here's my question about perihelion right away that I noticed as I was doing research. I, I using uh, JPL's orbital diagrams animations, saw that we're going to be at perihelion basically two AU away from the sun for three days. Is that right? Or do you know? Did um, you know about that? Uh, it takes uh, the Earth to <laughs> move around the sun uh, for about a year. But um, in terms of this, ob this object moves uh, faster than the Earth and, and it doesn't go all the way around the sun. It goes a fraction of the distance that the Earth does. So I would guess more like a month. But uh, it depends what you mean by uh, close to the sun. I mean, uh, to cross uh, a few AU would take it mo a month or so. Okay, I guess I was looking at it as more as a, um, I guess as a macro. You know, when I was just going through the timelines of, you know, the distance of where the comet would be away from the sun, and I guess this is going to come from my inexperience from not following as many objects as I sh as I will in the future, is that I just recognize, because there has been a little discussion about maybe the physical parameters of the comet and, and the distance away from the sun and any potential, and I always speak in potential, I never say yes or no's, I say what's the potential of a disintegration, a breakup of some sort of this comet 
from its physical size and its distance to the sun. And so when I looked at how many days, you know, as far as the orbital diagrams give us, I mean, like you said, it could take a full month to make that large bend around the sun. And and I was just looking at it more specifically as the couple of days that's closest to the sun. Does, Does that add any vulnerability to that? to the comet as it's at its closest approach? Yeah, it really, the question of whether it will disintegrate uh, very much depends on its internal strength. Uh, there is another uh, comet uh, that came from the solar system that uh, had roughly the same size that did disintegrate uh, when it came uh, to a separation slightly closer uh, to the sun. So there is a chance, a significant chance, that it may disintegrate. But I should say from the start that this particular object does not look any different than objects we have seen before that originated within the solar system. So it looks like uh, it emits gases. It, it has a cometary tail that looks very much like comets that came from the solar system in the past, uh, except this one uh, is coming uh, from interstellar space. So it's uh, moving much faster than those did. When, when it was outside the, the solar system, it already moved at uh, roughly the, the speed of the Earth around the sun, about 30 uh, kilometers per second. Uh, that is faster than the first uh, interstellar object that was reported, Oumuamua. But most importantly, this one is big, uh, about 10 times bigger than Oumuamua. And also, it, it, it uh, looks just like a regular comet. Um, and many of its properties are similar to those that we have seen before. So, so I don't, you know, in terms of the uh, uh, properties, and, and this object is no surprise in terms of its composition or the way it behaves. Uh, it looks just as we expected from an interstellar comet that was ejected from another uh, planetary system and resembled the objects that we have in the solar system. That's uh, that's informing me more about you know what what potential is there in these instances and as you know from my viewpoint as always is as long as you have an eye on it because I know there's a lot of astronomers that are take pointing telescopes at it I myself have had an opportunity to take pictures on three different days so if anything does happen we'll soon and quickly get uh, information to that effect as we're at that breakup I'm a, I'm a, we'll come away from it but I just want to ask one more question because. It came up either in a discussion or I I read it in an article. And, uh, you know, articles can come from anywhere these days. Potential that, you know, the comet being a certain makeup and there being a a core inside. So it's it's a core with a a large amount of uh, ice and dust and et cetera, et cetera. So the sun uh, gets uh, to a point where we have a flare up or a disintegration. And or well, or or is that a common experience for comets to to break up and then have something more asteroidal be at the center? More, do you know what I mean? Uh, Yeah, I mean, but comets uh, could be made just of ice. I mean, they may not have a central, um, you know, iron core necessarily. They could be just uh, dirty ice. You know, the the first person to imagine what uh, comets are made of uh, was Fred de Whipple. He actually was at Harvard uh, at the time. And if you go to Harvard Square in the winter, you see a lot of dirty ice. Um, at this time of the year, you can see it in, on the street. And that gave him, I believe, the idea that uh, perhaps 
comets are made of dirty ice, which is uh, the common folklore now. He was the pioneer that imagined this. Uh, and th- these objects uh, form in the outer parts of the solar system as a result of uh, ice forming there and some uh, debris from the early solar system uh, was left behind. So, so you get a mix of ice with other uh, ingredients, but it could also be that ice uh, uh, collected around a piece of rock. And uh, as you say, in that case, it would there would be a central core, which is rocky. Uh, so it all depends on the individual comet that one is looking at. If there is only rock, then it's called an asteroid. In that case, you don't get any cometary tail when the object passes close to the sun. Now, Oumuamua did not show uh, a cometary tail. So um, we didn't see, uh, you know, an and there were observations that went very deep in order to search for any gases around it uh, with the Spitzer Space Telescope, and we couldn't find any evidence. So initially people thought maybe it's a comet, but then they saw that there are no gases around it. So then they said, well, it's it's not a comet, it's an asteroid. But then the surprising thing was that it deviated from an orbit shaped only by the sun's gravity. So there must have been something pushing on it. And usually that something is the rocket effect from the evaporation of gases uh, in a comet. So Oumuamua is still very puzzling because on the one hand, it didn't show any cometary outgassing, but at the same time, it showed a deviation from its orbit as if it had outgassing. Now, I'll I'll go into a question then after that, because the first time we spoke about it, you brought up um, something, if I can remember correctly, that was relative to the speed of a Muamua. There was an oddity to it or peculiarity to it. And besides the increase in speed is that if I can remember how it was told to me, and this is how I report it back, that a Muamua was moving in a speed away from the sun similar to the speed that the sun was moving away from Oumuamua, which made that relative speed to each other an oddity? Well, um, no. So actually, uh, Oumuamua uh, originated in the so-called local standard of rest. So if you look at all the stars near the sun, they have uh, random speeds relative to each other. It's sort of like a busy street where you see people walking relative to each other. But you can still find the average frame of reference, the, the frame of reference that you obtain by averaging the, the, the motion of all the stars near the sun. This is called the local standard of rest. You can think of it as the galactic rest frame, the frame of reference of the galaxy, and the stars are moving relative to it locally. Uh, and it, it so happens that the Oumuamua was at rest in that frame, uh, sort of like a buoy on the surface of the ocean that is not moving, uh, and then a ship runs into it. That's uh, exactly ship, what I say. <laughs> yeah, the, the ship was the solar system. So that was quite unusual because only one in 500 stars uh, is so much at rest relative to the local uh, frame of reference. The, the local standard of rest. So that was another peculiar fact about Oumuamua. Uh, and altogether, you know, it was a very weird object. We haven't detected any heat from it. It was uh, much more shiny than a typical uh, asteroid or comet. And uh, it, it had a very extreme geometry. It uh, most likely was a pancake-shaped object with at least uh, 
length that is 10 times bigger than its width. And so when you put all of these together, you realize that, you know, it, it, while Borisov is very typical, Umomua was very unusual. So I was asked when Borisov was discovered, I was asked, um, so doesn't that prove that Umuomua was also a typical object? And I, my reply was that, you know, if you walk down the street and the first person you see looks a bit weird, uh, then the fact that you see many, you know, normal people afterwards doesn't make the first person that you saw um, typical. It makes that person even more weird because all the people that you later see appear normal. So the same is true about this case. Uh, the fact that Borisov looks typical and, and just like solar system objects doesn't make Oumuamua uh, typical. It makes Oumuamua even... Uh, and the question is, what was it? Uh, and of course, we, you know, if it's one out of many such objects, uh, we should find the more of the same in the future. And I'll, I'll, I'll say this too, uh, Abby. I found its name really odd too and peculiar as well. And I'll just tell you, just because I tell all my other other listeners to that in my research of the translation of the name it wasn't necessarily um, exactly the way it was put forward now the word scout is definitely in it but um, if you look at the translation it's, it's really sometimes um, it's un- unnerving have you read the different translations of Oumuamua and do you know what uh, the Hawaiian I mean the Hawaiian for mua means well, I don't think we should assign a, a very special significance to that because it's just humans that decided to give it that name. I mean, uh, what we should uh, always focus on are the scientific facts about this object. I mean, the name is not really important. You know, if we call a giraffe uh, a lion, it doesn't change its uh, qualities. You know, that, that doesn't matter. So um, really, uh, the name of the object is really secondary. By the way, the name Borisov uh, is because uh, the Russian amateur astronomer uh, named Borisov discovered this object. And uh, he discovered this object by looking in the direction of the sun. And uh, not many people do that, uh, look in the direction of the sun. (laughs) It's an interesting question to ask him why he did that. But this is one way, for example, to find the satellites. human-made satellites uh, because of the glint. They reflect sunlight, so one way to find them is by looking in that direction. Uh, I'm not sure what he was looking for, but at any event, he looked in a direction that not many people look at, and he was very lucky to find this object, which is quite big. It's about uh, a kilometer, a mile in size. Right. I can I can tell you from my experience as being an amateur astronomer that I know that my and and knowing and loving transient objects and comets and stuff that the best place to look for those objects is right after sunset and right before sunrise. So you're basically looking at the sun. And um, for that reason, you can see a lot. Of, you know, there's certain objects that are hidden from view because they are coming at us from a perspective that is near to the sun uh, and, and new objects are normally found. But I know from my experience that if you're out looking for comets and new objects and comets, look before the sun, right before the sun rises and right after the sun sets and you'll be looking in the right area. And so Jenaday... Borisov, the Crimean uh, astronomer, and he built his own telescope, which is also very amazing because it's quite, it's got a pretty big aperture on it. Uh, and for anyone who doesn't know, aperture is how big his, his mirror is. And he built it himself and he's a Crimean, uh, uh, um, 
amateur astronomer. And that's one thing I always tell my uh, listeners as well, is this whole idea of astronomy and what we're looking at in Interstellar Travelers is a a natural science that we can all be a part of. Amateur astronomers have the capability now in these days and the desire and the interest, just like professionals do, these, these equipments and telescopes. Since we last talked, Abby, we have a family observatory that just came online in Central Texas, and it's our second one, and it, it it compares to some wonderful other observatories, and it's just a testament to how citizen science continues to improve with science as it moves along. Um, yeah, that, that's the beauty of uh, astronomy, I should say, that, you know, uh, the big telescopes are dedicated, they, 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 there are lots of astronomers that are subscribed to them, and time is very precious, but uh, you know, there are things that amateurs can do that complement what professional astronomers do that allow them to discover uh, new events and uh, new objects. And, uh, uh, for example, um, within uh, a couple of years, a large synoptic survey telescope will come online and it will survey the sky. But um, even before that, amateurs can find many new objects like Borisov uh, in particular or transients, things that appear on the sky that were never there before. And and um, there are many ways by which amateur astronomers can participate in, in discoveries uh, in astronomy, which which is quite unusual compared to other fields of science where you need, you know, very expensive laboratories or uh, instruments in order to make progress. Uh, here it's, it's accessible to a lot of people. Exactly. And it's a wonderful year for events for astronomers like myself who loves transient objects. We had the Torrid Resonance Swarm support supposed passage between June and August, so I was very busy and very interested. I didn't have any success, I'll tell everybody, but that doesn't mean I wasn't enjoying going out and attempting to look into a certain part of space and watch objects that uh, would have never been that had never been discovered before potentially come in front of my telescope, but I didn't get any luck. And now with Borisov 2, and I really think it's a very important event that's coming up, and I've been recently over this week because I've been really trying to dive in and get more into what's going on. I have a lot of people saying, listen, I've never heard of it before, or I've heard of it before, but I guess nobody cares and, and all of these things. And I want people to understand that these are very important events because let's look at a different aspect of what Abby's hopes and dreams, I'll say that, are, because you work with the Breakthrough Starshot Initiative program, right? Right, yes. And and this is humanity becoming interstellar. So you you might question, well, Abby, what's, what's... you know, where's where's all this knowledge come from? But I've learned through learning about Abby that the Starshot Initiative uh, is going to be the program, and and I'm probably way underdoing it, and I'm I'm sorry, and I'm gonna let you go on. It's a program that this group is going to take humanity to Alpha Centauri. So that means we're going to be interstellar. And so now that we stepped away from the two objects, can we talk about a little bit of human technology that's going to reverse what we're looking at and take what we have here and put it in another star system? Yeah, so um, these comets uh, <clears throat> that we see coming, a uh, comet like Borisov that comes from interstellar space moves um, a little bit faster but not very different than uh, a, a chemical rocket. A, a, a typical spacecraft that we launched in, in, in the past, like New Horizons, 
moves a little faster, but not much faster, maybe twice as much. Uh, and uh, that means that it takes it a long time to traverse the distance between stars. So uh, to get, for example, to the nearest star uh, from us, um, the Alpha Centauri star system that has three stars in it, uh, it's about four light years away. Uh, but it, ta- it will take a chemical rocket about uh, uh, 50,000 years to get there. Uh, so it's a very long time, roughly the time when humans left, uh, <laughs> that elapsed since humans left Africa um, for the first time. Um, so, you know, if we were to launch a chemical rocket back then, it will only get n- right now uh, to the nearest star system. And that's a long time to wait. So uh, we, in, in the context of Starshot, um, we defined as the objective to reach the nearest star within our lifetime, within a couple of decades. And since uh, that star system is uh, four light years away, it means that the spacecraft needs to move at a fifth of the speed of light or so, uh, or more than that, uh, that'd be even better. So it will take two decades to reach the nearest star if the spacecraft moves at a fifth of the speed of light. And of course, the challenge is how to get to that speed. Uh, the problem with chemical rockets is that you carry the fuel uh, with the spacecraft, and therefore you can't really reach speeds that are uh, much greater than the exhaust speed, than the speed that uh, gas is being ejected from the exhaust of the rocket. And uh, that means that you will never be able to move much faster than New Horizons, for example. New Horizons is moving roughly at the same speed as Sputnik was. So all of the rockets that we launched since Sputnik moved roughly, you know, at the same speed, which which is similar to Borisov. And it takes a long time to traverse those interstellar distances. The only way to avoid that is not to carry the fuel with the spacecraft. Uh, and one technology that can do that is uh, light sail technology, where you push on a sail with a beam of light, uh, just like the sail on a sailboat that is being pushed by the wind. When light reflects off a sail, it gives it a push. But you need a very powerful beam of light that will do that. I mean, you can, in principle, use sunlight, but it's not powerful enough. And so our idea was to use a very powerful laser beam that shines on a sail that is roughly the height of a person. For a few minutes, uh, if this uh, beam, laser beam is uh, 100 gigawatt, you can reach uh, a fifth of the speed of light as long as the sail is very thin and, and weighs only a few grams. And um, it will cross a distance that is five times the distance to the moon during these few minutes, but then it will reach a fifth of the speed of flight. And if it carries electronics uh, that includes a, a camera, communication device, navigation device, then uh, it will serve uh, the role of a spacecraft. And it will take it uh, 20 years to reach the nearest star system, but uh, it, it, we could witness such such a, a, an event. And, and that makes it much more attractive than waiting for 100,000 years, you know, um, or 50,000 years. Um, and so um, it's possible, you know, that other civilizations have mastered this technology already. The thing is that such a small spacecraft that weighs roughly a gram would be impossible for us to detect with our telescopes. Even if 
such spacecraft were passing, crossing the, the solar system, we would never notice them because they don't reflect much sunlight. To see Borisov, you know, uh, we need an object of the size of a kilometer or a mile, uh, you know, a, a fraction of the size of a city in order for us to see the reflected, the reflected sunlight uh, from it. So it's really difficult for us to see an object that is, you know, a thousand times smaller than that, unless it go, you know, it crosses, it collides with the Earth uh, and then passes through the atmosphere of the Earth. And we call those objects uh, meteors. So we can potentially use the atmosphere of the Earth as a detector. But other than that, uh, just looking in space, we can't really see such small objects. So when you're talking about the small objects, were you talking about objects coming in from outside our solar system that were that were technology similar to the technology that we would send from Earth? Yeah, I'm saying if if we are not alone, if we are okay. not the only ones developing this technology, uh, you know, it would I, I would regard it as arrogant to to think that we are the smartest kid on the block. I would think that you know the we are probably not, and and these technologies were developed by others. But my point is that you know even if there are things like that passing through the solar system, we would not have noticed, and and therefore we are not aware of that. Well, I am of the mind, and I say it all the time that I. I am willing to uh, expand my knowledge, uh, even if I can't know the answer about things. The universe is so large. Don't expect to know the answers. Don't, don't, you know, don't be, you know, you need to be humble at this moment, at this time when you're dealing with this type of information. And the best uh, idea that I can give you, the best advice I can give my listeners is to use your eyes and your ears and your sensibility when you're listening, hearing, observing what's going on in outer space, because it'll tell you what's going on. And if it's not fully described in what you can see, you know, amateur astronomers, science, academia is working hard on these on these tasks. Now, I have a question still about the Starshot. What successes have you had? Did I not read that there was a launch at one time already for a test run? Well, there were there was a launch of um, um, a small um, piece of equipment uh, sort of uh, just to demonstrate that we can launch things uh, and you know some small uh, piece um, uh, of electronics that can communicate with the earth but but it was not using the technology of of a light sail it was just launching it into space and demonstrating that uh, a gram scale circuit of electronics can communicate uh, a miniature of a spacecraft uh, can communicate with the earth and that that was all so we are still working on um developing the technologies that are needed i mean they're very challenges challenging they involve uh, developing a very powerful laser by combining many small ones uh, also developing a sail that is sufficiently strong uh, in terms of material strength, but then doesn't absorb mass, much of laser beam because otherwise it will heat up and burn. And also it will be a good reflector. That's uh, what we require it to be. Uh, so we need to find the right material and uh, the right structure that uh, is optimized for its purpose. Uh, and also the communication is a challenge. Um, once the spacecraft goes to a great distance, uh, how to communicate with it? If it takes uh, photographs of, of the target planet, uh, you know, how easy it is to, to receive those 
uh, on Earth given the large distance uh, of four light years. These are all major challenges, but uh, you know, we ha any major any, any long journey starts with the first few steps, and if we we don't if we will not make those steps, we will never get there. And so some some of my colleagues uh, argue that it's very challenging, and perhaps you know we should not even dare to go into interstellar space. But my point is, you know, unless we try. You know, we would never know how difficult it is. And uh, it's the same reason as uh, developing any other technologies. Um, you know, if, if we were reluctant to develop technology, we would still be in the Stone Age right now. Abby, I want to say a joke. You must have above your desk like we have in our office and we're in quality control. We're not happy until you're not happy, right? You catch flag for a lot of your, you know, a lot of open-mindedness about science, which everybody should be, you've caught flack before. And you just mentioned again how, you know, they were questioning you about something. So you just got to get a sign over your desk. We're not happy until you're not happy. Okay. Well, I basically don't care too much about uh, what other people say. I have my inner compass. And uh, as long as I do what I regard as the right thing, then I'm not worried about it because it's consistent with the way I do my science. I'm not, uh, uh, you know, se selling any fictitious uh, stories here. I'm just explaining what I do. And, and by the way, I use exactly the same scientific method as I do for other topics. You know, there are topics in the study of the universe that are far more speculative, for example, concerning the dark matter or, or other aspects of the universe that, you know, the mainstream of astronomy uh, is not reluctant to speculate about, but uh, for some sociological reasons, they are very concerned about discussing the other topics that we discussed uh, so far. And I don't fully understand that. To me, all of them are part of science and we should uh, approach them this way. And, and I think, you know, just as you said, we should not have a prejudice. We should base all of our um, conclusions on evidence. Um, and that was, by the way, what Galileo, when he looked through his telescope, that's what he concluded. He told philosophers back then, look through my telescope and you will realize that the Earth moves around the sun. And uh, they refused to do that. They said, we know the answer, there is no point, and they put him in house arrest. And yet, the Earth moved around the sun. The fact that they refused to look through the telescopes didn't change anything. So it only delays progress. If people are reluctant to discuss things, if they have a taboo on some subject, some topics, and are refusing to collect evidence, it only delays our progress. It reflects badly on us as not being intelligent. Uh, but, you know, it's all, it, it doesn't change the facts. Yeah, it's amazing for me. You just brought up a, a point in time in history that is just quite amazing to me for this reason. Because if you go back uh, 1100 years before that period of time that you were talking about, there was all sorts of knowledge about the way the planets moved and all that. You know, before Galileo, before whatever influences got into our scientific way of thinking, which actually brought us farther away from the truth, I think, than closer to it. And now, after all these years, we're finally getting to a point, well, well, you and me have just spoken. There's still that anti-voice, but we have to, people like us, myself included, have to move forward with the open minds and open eyes, open ears, willing to ask questions, willing to reach out to, to brilliant people like yourself and bring them onto a show that we can talk about this kind of topic because there's not enough people talking about this kind of topic. I have some more questions. Uh, I would like to comment, uh, actually, on that uh, that, uh, you know, a, a few years ago, I went uh, on a vacation to Mexico and 
And uh, in one of the days, my family and I decided to visit Chichen Itza, which is a, a, an ancient Mayan city in Mexico. And the um, the tour guide was marveling at the fact that uh, the ancient Mayans collected a lot of astronomical data. So that made me curious because um, back then astronomers were regarded as um, the highest class uh, in society because the, the politicians of the day thought that uh, you can form forecast the future based on the motion of planets. So they believed in astrology, that, that the, the, the motion of objects on the sky actually can tell you something about our future as humans. So if you want to go to a war, you, can, uh, you, you need to decide when to do that based on where objects are on the sky, where Mars is and so forth, and the sun and so forth. So they had astronomers to advise them. And these astronomers collected a huge amount of data over hundreds of years on the motion of planets uh, without using telescopes, using observatories. And uh, then you may ask, okay, so why didn't they come up with a Newtonian theory of gravity or with what Kepler came up with or, you know, other astronomers later on? And, you know, part of the reason is that even though they did such marvelous work of collecting data, they were entrapped in this prejudice that that actually this data is useful for political reasons that that you can use it for astrology that and they didn't think critically about what the data implies and and does it really say something about you know planets moving around the sun or so you know collecting data is not enough if you are entrapped in some prejudice and What's most important is to keep an open mind. I mean, the same happened in Europe, as we talked before, that there was a prejudice and Galileo had to fight it. So um, my my biggest lesson from history is that uh, we should be open minded and pay attention to evidence. And, and we should not uh, we should be humble, uh, basically collect as much data as possible to educate ourselves rather than arguing that we know the truth in advance. And I'm really surprised that uh, a lot of uh, scientists do not do not learn that lesson from history well i and i've been saying this more recently to um the folks that i talk to it's all about time really the time that we give is the most important thing that we can give back to whatever we're doing so if you're going to take the time to do something the best thing to do is have an open mind enjoy what you're doing and learn as much as you can Whatever topic, whatever subject you do, hopefully it's a good one. Hopefully it's something you enjoy. But let's keep an open mind because the universe is just a very mysterious place. Now, I have a question about Starshot. Oh, we're going to go back a little bit. Light sail technology. Now, photons can act as particles in waves at the same time, right? And when we're shooting uh, a laser at something, now we don't know what it will be yet. We don't know what the sail exactly will be. But our goal is to use a laser and move a a spacecraft away from the Earth in a direct line to gain speed at the front of the sight of a laser beam. Right. Now, my question is this, and I'm not going to try to, I'm just going to ask the question. Can radio waves do that? Yeah, in principle, um, waves of different wavelengths can can be used. But um, one should keep in mind that uh, you need to focus the beam of light. And uh, depending on its wavelength and the size of the aperture that is producing the light, uh, uh, you can focus it to different distances. And so it turns out that uh, if you ask yourself, 
um, what is the optimal wavelength for uh, launching a gram scale spacecraft to a fraction of the speed of light? It turns out to be um, roughly the visible light or infrared light uh, wavelength. Uh, but if you want to uh, launch a much heavier spacecraft that weighs tons, Uh, to a much smaller speed, still above the speed of um, chemical rockets, but, but not much larger, maybe a factor of 10 or so, then uh, radio waves might be better, uh, it turns out, because if you launch it to a smaller speed, then you don't need to focus the light uh, as well. And uh, you can use radio technology to do that uh, because the, the distance over which you launch the system is, is shorter than in the case where the spacecraft is moving at a fraction of the speed of light. So um, uh, this actually, uh, this uh, we wrote a paper about it with uh, a postdoc of mine, suggesting that radio waves uh, can be used in the context of the light sail technology to launch uh, cargos between uh, Earth and Mars, for example. And, and in that paper, we said, okay, well, let's imagine that the same thing happens in another planetary system where you have planets like the Earth and Mars and cargos are being launched from one planet to another. How can we find evidence for that? Very simply, because, you know, when... When a, a beam of light uh, is pushing on a sail, you know, a small fraction of the light uh, is leaking uh, beyond the boundary of the sail. And, and you will see it if you happen to be in the direction of the beam. So um, if we see another planetary system and, and Earth and Mars-like planets uh, align with our line of sight, then we might see the beam that is pushing on on the sail that is that is propelling a, a cargo from one planet to the other. And, and we would see that as a, a flash of light, especially in the radio waves. Um, uh, it will be short in duration, a flash, simply because we are moving relative to that beam and, and also the source is moving relative to us. So, so it, the, the, the time over which we see this flash uh, is, is short. Um, but uh, in principle, you can search the sky for flashes of light uh, that originate from um, light beams that are used for propulsion and that's going to lead me to my question because i'm always i spent I've, i still spend a lot of time thinking about Oumuamua and all the different ways that it could get into our solar system frbs Definitely. Fast radio bursts. And so for the longest time, we and SETI, you know, if everyone wants to think these are this this FRB and, and the signals and the frequencies that we're talking about would be something that SETI uh, is interested in. They've forever been looking for signals to come in from the universe. And over time, they, you know, they've they had been witness to FRBs, but they have not had been. Um, witness to one that repeats. And right. now currently, as far as my knowledge goes, is we have upwards of eight different FRBs that are repeating in nature. So I'm, I'm thinking, I'm going to throw this out there, Abby. We all know the shape description of a muamua, right? Is something like that that they put in the front of an FRB? Because, well, again, it would really have to be a unique scenario where uh, Oumuamua was a very, very special object, even more special than we understand it to be right now. But, okay, let's just take another object. So we have a known FRB going on, and it's uh, utilized by either us or another another um, star system. Potential, yes? Uh, yeah, the, the one thing to keep in mind is that some of these repeating uh, FRBs um, – 
are known to originate from cosmological distances from the edge of the universe. And uh, so we wrote a paper, actually, with a, a former postdoc of mine, Manas Viligam, where we asked, how much energy do you need in order to, suppose it is a light sail and, and these flashes of light originate from uh, a light sail technology, is that feasible in terms of the amount of energy that is needed, those great distances uh, from the edge of the universe? And, and we found that you, you need roughly to use up uh, all the energy that is uh, intercepted by the Earth uh, and beam it into a very powerful radio beam. So in principle, um, uh, all this, if, if there was a huge uh, uh, array of photovoltaic cells, cells that uh, covers the earth using up all the sunlight falling on earth and and powering a very uh, powerful radio uh, beam uh, then you would see such a beam across the universe and that could lead to a fast radio burst it's much easier to produce a fast radio burst if it's closer to us uh, because then you need less energy. The amount of energy you need goes like the distance squared. So um, I would say, you know, it, it has to be really a very advanced technological civilization if, if fast radio bursts are associated with the light cell technology. So um, it, it's more challenging and therefore less likely, uh, <clears throat> but it has to be kept in mind. And indeed, uh, uh, breakthrough uh, listen is is monitoring those fast radio bursts. You know, it's possible that there are a mix, that some of them, we know that some of them come from cosmological distances. We don't know that most of them, uh, because we only see a few repeaters, a small fraction of all the bursts are repeating, and we just don't know the distances of the others. And um, and so uh, it could be a mixed population, and, and a fraction of it may be associated with an interesting type of sources uh, that are artificial in origin, while most of them may be natural in origin. I should say that the, the most popular view of astronomers is that these fast radio bursts originate from the birth of, of a neutron star, um, uh, that is a star, you know, that is a star that has the density of an atomic nucleus that forms when the core of a massive star, much more massive than the sun, at least eight times more massive than the sun, when such a star, the core of it collapses, it can make um, a neutron star, which has roughly the mass of the sun, but the size of a city, about uh, 12 kilometers in size. And uh, such an object, when it's born, if it has a very strong magnetic field, could potentially produce fast radio bursts. But we don't know if it can, and, and we, we don't have direct evidence that it does. But that's the most popular view, that that some very strongly magnetized uh, neutron stars, when they are born, may produce fast radio bursts. Okay. Um, now, we're coming up to the top of the hour, and you said you were going to give me an hour. Is that going to be – you're going to finish with me at the top of the hour? Because yes. I have – yes? Okay, then I just – I want to uh, shoot one more question out from left field. Uh, some of your research is about black holes. I'm interested right now in researching potential Planet Nine culprits, right? And so I'm looking at dwarf galaxies, galaxies uh, – dwarf black holes, dwarf black holes that were created right after the Big Bang, small, certain mass-sized black holes. Could we replace a, uh, a, a Planet Nine with a baseball-sized black hole 
Is that potential? Does that have it, any potential? It is possible, um, but uh, I should say that these black holes are not easy to produce in the air. The only way to produce them is in the early universe because we can't make them out of uh, stars. Stars make black holes that weigh uh, at least three times the mass of the sun. There is no known process that can make black holes that weigh less than the sun. And uh, for Planet Nine, we need a, a, an object that is 10 times the mass of the Earth, uh, which is, you know, like 10,000 times less massive than the Sun. So we can't produce such an object by known astrophysical processes from the evolution of stars or planets or anything. The only way to make such objects, such uh, black holes, is in the early universe uh, by some unknown process that we don't fully understand. It's possible, but I wouldn't say that it's likely because we, we simply don't know if such a thing happened early on in the universe. And, and it requires very unusual circumstances to make such a black hole. So, you know, people think about, you know, potentially in the early universe making black holes that are the mass of an asteroid uh, or the mass of the Earth. Or I mean, it's possible, but then I would say, you know, until we have clear evidence that such objects exist, we will not, you know, find that likely. Uh, and one, one way to find such objects, I should say, is if two black holes uh, merge, if they collide with each other, they produce ripples of space and time that we can detect. And now there is the LIGO observatory that uh, detected black hole collisions uh, all the way from the edge of the universe. And uh, the Nobel Prize in 2017, a couple of years ago, was awarded uh, for that discovery of gravitational waves from black hole collisions. Now, all the black holes that were detected so far have uh, masses above that of the sun, way above that of the sun. Tens of times that of the sun most, uh, in most cases. So, uh, you know, we could potentially find evidence for two black holes that are smaller mass that collide, but um, so far we haven't. And we'd probably have to understand a little bit more about what goes on right after the Big Bang, because that's really the space that we're talking about. We're talking about when the universe was only such a size that it couldn't uh, contain a large black hole, because then that's where we're at. Um, Abby, I want to thank you so much for coming back on Collision Course and talking with me, Francis, about these topics today. I love talking about interstellar objects. I love talking about transient objects. I love talking about Oumuamua, the whole idea of thinking because I think in the in in the future, you know, in a lifetime, in a generation, we're going to come across an object that's really going to inform us even more than we know right now. And and since uh, two I Borisov is still in our inner solar system, it may not be done telling us what's going on with it. And I want to thank you very very much for joining us, Abby, and you and your family as well. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Abby. We'll see and hopefully talk to you again in the future. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye. This is the people's war. It is our war. We are the fighters. Fight it then. Fight it with all that is in us. And may God defend the right. Warning! Warning! We've got to stop us! They're going to kill us all! See how the trouble you've started? Be they the government, be they industry, be they organized labor, be they anyone, or human beings. I'm...